I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Today, we welcome back our first ever guest, Hannah Kennedy. Hannah's career has moved on from Cabrini Hospital to a broader consulting role. So it's an opportunity to talk with a health administration expert about the dynamics of the system in this COVID environment. Hannah lays out the tensions in the system, talks about the ethical dimension and lands with some important messages about our frontline healthcare workers. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for spending this time. I wanted to get your take on health services, particularly in the time since COVID, and mentioned in the intro that you'd moved from a mainstream role to consulting. How do you think health administration, the practice that you're in, Hannah, has changed as a consequence of COVID? What have been the big dynamics? Health administration, I suppose, is a specific and unique skill set to that question, Steve, really a lot of questions are what is health administration? I think a lot of people, some of those areas that you just touched on with, is it clinical? Is it community? Well, no, what is it? I think what's involved with being a health administrator is really understanding the health system and then applying a particular lens or a set of skills across the health system. From what I feel like my skill set brings is the problem solving of quite complex issues, weighing up benefit and risk, strong communication and strategic communication, change management, data analysis, report writing, engagement with people throughout the entire health system and engagement to the point where you're really taking people on a journey. And I think that really plays into the change management piece. And I think health service management, it comes traditionally kind of has two trajectories so I think the first trajectory is really probably similar to myself not a clinician you come in as a health administrator you build experience on the job you gain knowledge through doing if similar to me you study a master's of health service management and this probably traditionally is the less likely trajectory But I think it's definitely starting to gain some more traction and become a more established pathway into the profession. But then I think the clinical background is really a strong understanding. Obviously, people coming from a clinical background have a really strong understanding of the healthcare environment and context. They easily build credibility. They may have been a nurse or allied health professional or a doctor. Then they've transitioned into administration or management. So I think traditionally, in the past, like they haven't really had that people management side, but then they've been promoted into higher levels of management and they become non-clinical. And those people also can do very well, but sometimes they might not have initially had the skills to run or understand healthcare as business. And I think there's more to being a health administrator than just being a strong clinical leader. I think there's some other competencies to become a successful health service manager. So with that kind of framing, I suppose what has changed as a consequence of COVID 
is that COVID has required an operational response or I would say like a coordinated project or coordinated response is what's been required within the healthcare system over and over again and whether that's in the acute setting or whether it's in a community health setting. I think that health administration and COVID is really about responding to a problem, whether it's been responding to an outbreak within a service or within a local community. It's required a quick and agile response, like a pop-up testing site, a vaccination hub to try and ramp up vaccinations as quick as possible. The coordination of these types of responses in COVID I think is exactly really lends itself to a health service manager because it's someone that can understand the risk and benefit kind of analysis of a situation and they can quickly coordinate people to perform or to be involved in a response to something. Hannah, can we hold that point? I just want to go and unpack it and you know I'm oversimplified and you'll have to explain it for me. But are you sort of saying that in the past the health network might have been able to operate or the health system might have been able to operate as a series of compartments, if you like, where the patient could move from one compartment to the next on their health journey? From time to time, there'd be a resourcing issue like how many nurses compared with how many beds and all of that sort of thing. That's become more time and resource critical. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's quite a lot to unpack with that, Steve, because I think what you're touching on there really is like the systems integration and the fragmentation of the system that currently exists. I'm not the person that really knows the answer to this, but I think there's a lot of perception, whether it's from within the community or within healthcare itself, that the system's overburdened, there's not enough resources, this type of conversation. I think that's something really interesting because obviously in the sense of the pandemic, sure, there might not be enough resources and the system is overburdened, it's overwhelmed. But also, how are we utilising the opportunities that we have within the healthcare system? And are these fragments and lack of integration at different levels and across different whether it's in acute or primary or the response between the two, if that is lacking, is that where fragmentation is being created and then this overburden becomes even more extreme? Health systems across Australia, you'd have to say, have responded magnificently. And you touched on putting pop-up clinics or testing centres quickly and they have to be resourced. And that resource has to come from somewhere. And Mm. so far, we've been able to sort of do that. But it would seem inevitably there's a price to pay elsewhere if you move resource from one place to another. Is that sort of where you're going? Absolutely. I think there's a whole bunch of issues relating to that type of response. I think to your point, Steve, like I completely agree, the healthcare system has done an amazing job so far. It's done everything that it could. And I think people that are delivering these services day to day are going the very end of their tether to provide these services. It's not an individual issue that people aren't contributing enough or not making enough effort. I think they're working against the system and that is very hard and it's very tiring and it's relentless. I think it's relentless for people on the front line. 
but yeah, I think that when you do set up these things and it's very quick, exactly what you're saying, you pull resources from somewhere else and then there's a hole over there. So it's very difficult to know what the answer is to that. Why is the system designed like that? When we think about that, the way that the system is funded is that I think the acute system runs pretty lean for the most part. And the demand is not taking into account pandemic levels of burden of disease. So the system operates, is funded in a way that is based on the year before. So if you're looking at the funding for 2020 and it's modelled off 2019, well, you don't have that capacity in the 2020 budget because it was funded to accommodate a little bit of growth from the year before. And similarly this year, well, we're, things are just in pandemic levels, the demand is far exceeding the supply. And I think it's being pulled from everywhere, even to staff a pop-up clinic. And not to mention staff being exposed to COVID and being furloughed. Hospital systems are facing massive amounts of staff being quarantined. I think in some regional settings, because of a tier one exposure, you could lose half your entire workforce in one day. Yeah, and I think Mildura Healthcare Network have have had that happen a couple of times with 40 or 50 staff being sent home for a fortnight. I don't know whether it's people in the community or politicians or whoever it is understand the impact of that on the healthcare system. You cannot just come up with 60 extra staff, especially in a regional location. Staffing is a problem on a normal day in those locations. They can't get specialised trained skilled nurses on a normal day of the week they have a very high percentage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in that area you can't even imagine how many complexities they face. So Hannah can we just pause for a second how would you describe health inequality? So Steve I think it's really people that can't access health in the same way well equally to others. And what would that look like? Well, Steve, can I give you an example? So someone that I know, this person's male, they're 53 years old, they have an acquired brain injury and associated cognitive impairment and severe nerve damage, particularly affecting their hands and feet. This person's deteriorating over time. They live in a share house arrangement in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and they have quite good family support. They actually have three English-speaking advocates that are their siblings, one of which is a nurse. They all grew up in eastern Melbourne, so they didn't migrate here from anywhere, all grew up speaking English. And this particular person, their medical condition was deteriorating over time to the point that they actually had an inpatient admission at a hospital in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Well, so far, Hannah, you're describing the sort of person that you would expect to be looked after under the public health system that we've got in Australia. Yeah, definitely. And I think they've got advocates as well. So Mm. personally, if they aren't able to advocate for themselves, they do have people in those roles that are able to provide them with assistance to navigate the system. So what could possibly go wrong? Exactly right. So this person 
went into hospital for an inpatient stay relating to their condition. And then it became quite apparent that nerve damage had become so severe that they actually couldn't walk for a period of time. So they were having quite significant rehab. They had their initial inpatient stay in an acute hospital and then they were transferred to a rehab hospital for the second admission to hospital. These three advocates were raising an ACAS assessment, really trying to start that conversation of what's going to happen when this person goes back into the community. So what's an ACAS assessment? An aged care assessment. Got it. Yeah. Like a package kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And this ACAS assessment proves your eligibility to meet the criteria to access a home care package or the relevant funding underneath aged care. However, as we know, this person's only 53 years old. Traditionally, to access aged care packages and funding, you need to be 65 years or above for someone that is non-Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So it was advised that the correct stream of funding for this person to try and access was the NDIS, because for their age group, that was more of the applicable funding stream for them. So on all of their discharge summaries and hospital stay paperwork, the clinicians, the OT, physiotherapy and medical staff were writing on this documentation that this person should be considered for NDIS funding, terminology like NDIS eligible, et cetera, et cetera. The system's generally working so far, Hannah. So far, it's going well. So then this person comes out of hospital, finishes their rehab, their stint in rehab and returns home. This is where things start going a little bit pear-shaped. The application to the NDIS requires quite a significant amount of coordination. So one of the advocates collects all of the documentation involved in the NDIS application, which is the discharge summaries, completing all of the relevant paperwork, getting a written health statement from the GP, All the relevant documentation is collected and collated and put into the NDIS application by the advocate. So there was no physical assessment and that NDIS application sent off. In the meantime, this person's condition continues to deteriorate. They're still living on their own in a share house arrangement. They don't have any assistance other than from the advocates themselves who are helping now with domestic services, showering, washing the person's bed sheets, clothes, all this. So the NDIS application is going on for quite some time. So there's no response heard back. So the advocate follows up and tries to get a response from the NDIS. In the meantime, the person's nerve damage is deteriorating further. They have a shower chair now. However, they don't have the mobility to actually physically carry the shower chair from their room into the shower and out safely. So they don't actually have the mobility even to have a shower at this point. Still haven't heard back from the NDIS. Finally hear back from the NDIS, the application's been denied. Based on the paperwork that was provided, there was a response that the person didn't meet the criteria to access the NDIS funding. So the advocates need to work on making an amendment to the NDIS paperwork. After consulting with a couple of friends and family, they try to strengthen their application by using specific terminology that they've been advised that there's very specific terminology that needs to be used 
in order to achieve the access so to the NDIS. You've got to play the game. So that's the advice that they keep getting from whether it's from service providers directly, whether it's from people that work in the sector. You almost need to get someone that works in the sector to fill out the paperwork to be considered successful in the application. At this point, the person is now facing homelessness because of their lack of mobility, their inability to provide care to themselves, to shower, to undertake personal care they're actually facing becoming homeless at this point. So this is when these particular advocates actually reached out to me and I started to do some research in the entire process that had been undertaken. And I suppose when I said you almost need to work in this sector to be able to navigate it is exactly what ended up happening. This process was going on for about three months of the people trying to apply for the NDIS funding. Again, the person's deteriorating further. Their functionality to be able to live at home, their ability to live an everyday life is just deteriorating nearly every day. So I intervene. I do some research. I research specifically what other funding streams are available. If the NDIS isn't going to come to the party or provide any funding, surely this person is eligible to receive some other type of funding. So I start researching on the Victorian Department of Health website, the Federal Australian Health website. I worked for a short period of time in a previous role about seven years ago in aged care. I had a little bit of understanding of home care packages. So then I researched into ACAS again. Was this person eligible to receive ACAS funding? Because of his age, it was gonna be quite challenging to navigate that. So then I find out about this hack funding, home and community care, which traditionally was also for people that were more aged than this particular person. So that was also something that used to be funded under local councils, but seems to have been now moved under where the funding sits under the service providers. I only realised this from the research I was doing. And then I started to realise that Under home and community care, there's also a program for young people. So there is an element of funding that sits with service providers now for home and community care program for young people. So then I started researching, okay, so of this person's local area, what are the service providers that are currently providing service in that area for this particular funding stream? So then I started emailing them saying, this is a situation I'm advocating on behalf of somebody. I would like to find out some more information about the funding available for home and community care program for young people. Within 24 hours, they come back. They say, yes, we are the provider of this funding. We just need the person's name, date of birth, their address, a GP referral, and the sessions are $3.90 a day. They're capped at $49 for the month and the person will be means tested and the services can start next week. And you're away. So we're sort of saying, Hannah, if you hadn't have had that knowledge and the people hadn't had access to you, the person wouldn't have got access to that service. That's right. They would have just fallen through the cracks. I mean, they could have become homeless because it was the end of the line that really tried from what the information that they could access 
and from them trying to navigate this, this was the outcome that they had arrived at. They didn't know what to do. Hannah, what other sort of cohorts of people might, I guess, suffer? It's not the best word, but you get it, from health inequality. Who is vulnerable? Well, these advocates even say to me, Steve, they can't imagine what this would be like if they weren't English speaking. How would you navigate this if you had the language barrier of having migrated to Australia, the cultural barriers as well of the ways that different services and the beliefs within your own culture of the way that care might be received or it's such a system to try and navigate that. Some people, yeah, I think people that obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples would really suffer. You really need an advocate People with varying levels of disability, like, for example, if this person that I'm speaking about needed to advocate for themselves, they wouldn't even be able to. They would not be able to at all if they didn't have an advocate. What are some of the barriers to access of the health system for some of those cohorts in our community? I think that there is massive cultural barriers within not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but cold people, people that they don't consume mainstream media where I think a lot of this information initially was coming out in English. The response really needed to consider that this is not just information that needs to be consumed by the mainstream. It needs to be accessible from everyone. And I don't think that that is just making up a brochure in another language. I think that, sure, that might be helpful, but it's also about considering and researching the ways that these people consume information and also what influences and motivates them to be vaccinated. And I think that we might be making some headway in that space. I think the vaccination numbers, particularly to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, speaks to that quite clearly still a real gap in that and yeah I think that that is a space that's also probably under-resourced on a good day yeah I think that there's still definitely some really big challenges in us being able to provide that access to people. What are the ethical dimensions in terms of opening up the society and the economy whilst Mm. there is still a marginalised cohort who may be more vulnerable either because of vaccine or comorbidities? Yeah, I think it's really, really challenging weighing that up. It's completely unethical, really, to have people that are going to... We know that there'll be people that will become very unwell, that will die because of the opening up and because of... We know through the modelling that there's going to be cases and there's going to be hospitalisations and deaths, and it's to an extent that we're going to just accept that like when we think about underlying disease and I think that there's almost this notion through the way that the media perceives and reports death that an underlying condition just means that it's okay that the person died it's part of the media narrative really isn't it oh 100 percent I don't know, reporting that to people that they had an underlying condition, is that just discounting the value of that person's life? That's really quite concerning. It's a very concerning narrative and it's offering very minimal safety to people in marginalised groups. 
makes them feel more vulnerable than they already are to go outside and to participate in the community and to participate in activities that they normally would. And I think that's quite scary for those people and puts them in a very vulnerable position. And it is quite unethical. Hannah, I've just made a decision to appoint you as being in charge of the Australian national budget. Let's just say because of the pandemic, you've been given a slight increase because we're not going to give the health sector everything they want. How do you make that decision of where the resources go in terms of the upstream preventative thing or the downstream actually fixing the mechanics of the system? There's some key levers within the system, Steve, that really could be improved that would really help the system overall in more of an operational sense, like the use of technology and the way that we communicate with patients, monitoring in the home, hospital in the home, and some of the advancements that's been made there, the utilisation of telehealth. I think that there's some investments that could be made in those spaces that would be able to really improve the way that the healthcare system works. And If that was me and I was the decision maker, I think a lot of that would come down to the way that the system integrates across from acute to primary. And I think that when we talk about marginalised populations, I think that there's a lot of people that fall through the cracks between acute and primary healthcare. And I think that there's a lot of investment and improvement that needs to be made in the way that the acute and primary systems interact and intersect and what their relationship is because yeah I think that that's where there is a lot of opportunity there's opportunity for the community care and primary care sector to provide better support to the acute sector which I think we're finally starting to see that now but how is that going to sustain and what is that going to look like in the future I think that's a really interesting Peace. At the risk of editorialising, Hannah, you're almost suggesting we need to run the system in a way we're prepared for the next pandemic or the next wave of this pandemic. 100%. I think it would be naive to think that this won't continue. COVID's not just going to go away magically overnight and how long until another strain or different outbreak of something else. But yeah, I think even if we're not future-proofing it, we're improving it regardless of the way that it works now. I think that there's gaps between the acute and primary care setting that has become more evident and they're finally working together more closely for the first time. When you say that, do you mean people who might have been diagnosed with an underlying condition and seeing their GP or a local provider actually finding their way into a hospital setting? Yeah, and not only finding their way into a hospital setting, but what happens after that? I think their pathway of care following that we often get that first presentation right people receive the care they need in the first instance I think it's the ongoing care that people need and that pathway after their first acute admission it's the care that they receive ongoing from that so you mean after the discharge certificate signed yeah How quite. So, <laughs> coincidentally the discharge summary doesn't mean a cure the condition is still there. In Australia, we're going to see an increase of lifestyle disease. And because of that, people will present with comorbidities. There will be complex. I mean, healthcare conditions are complex. It's not a one-time visit. People need to be managed ongoing. It's not just a one visit in the hospital. How can the community care services that are well-funded and the programs that exist 
actually help to support the acute system on an ongoing basis and make sure that these people, whether they are vulnerable and marginalised or not, to actually receive the care they need in the community to have better health outcomes and to stay out of hospital more. Hannah, just to close, what do you think's changed in terms of community attitudes to health over the last 18 months or to health care or to the system? So I think predominantly people's perceptions on what's happening in health is usually from the media, unfortunately, or from people they know, so a nurse or someone that works within healthcare, that people's perception of the healthcare system is that it is overburdened, it's understaffed, people are asking why are we employing a 1,000 people from overseas, why aren't people being given the opportunities here, are people not being incentivised enough to work in healthcare in Australia, are the conditions not good, you know, and I've been thinking about this a lot as well and like how far does money go in motivating healthcare workers that are just completely burnt out, might not matter how much your overtime pay is and it doesn't matter how many times rosters text you for a shift, you actually just want to have a break because you're burnt out. In saying that, I do think healthcare workers though need to be compensated for the work they do and the risk that they're involved in at work particularly with COVID, just as other industries are compensated for risk. I think that it seems unfair that it's taken this long and it's taken a pandemic to recognise the risk that healthcare workers put themselves at and their families at to care for people on the front line. And we've known that in terms of culture of hospitals and healthcare networks, I suppose, as well. Hannah, that one of the risks is that, in fact, the good nature of these people is being taken advantage of at times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is why people get into healthcare and they are motivated to help people and to care for people. I mean, imagine if we had a walkout of nurses in this time. I mean, I just don't think that you would see that because of the dedication of these people to their patients and the seriousness of the pandemic. But then I don't think that should result in people not being compensated correctly for the care that they provide. Just in closing, Hannah, what would you like members of the community to think about? What do you think some live issues that in terms of political choices that we make in the way that they approach the health system as consumers, what should they be thinking about? People should be thankful. People should be so, so thankful. I mean, that's how I feel personally. I feel indebted to healthcare workers that they've put their lives on the line, particularly during the times when we didn't have a vaccine. Healthcare workers in our first wave were getting infected with COVID because of they were putting themselves in the firing line of a virus that we knew could kill people. People need to be approaching healthcare providers and services with an element of empathy towards them. People are tired and burnt out. I think that we just need to say thank you for everything that they've done. I think it's quite amazing and unbelievable. It's a very selfless profession and What we're putting them through at the moment as well is very stressful. Being on the front line at the moment is very stressful. I can only imagine the atmosphere inside a hospital at the moment. It's not somewhere where you'd want to be. People often think, oh, you're an essential worker. You're so lucky you get to go to work. It's like, yeah, you get to go to work in one of the most stressful environments that you could imagine. It's being completely overrun. People are so tired. People haven't obviously been able to leave the five kilometres of their house either. So the lockdown, I think, on healthcare workers is also a massive burden 
because you don't get a break from work. You don't get to have downtime. Obviously, none of us have, but healthcare workers are in a very stressful environment at work and then they come home and they're just in lockdown. So there's been no reprieve, no leisure. So caring for healthcare workers, saying thank you, probably a pretty good way to finish. Hannah Kennedy, thanks so much for talking with me. No problem, Steve. Thank you so much for having me on again. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Anna. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.